0: Well, as they're transitioning this morning, I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Young disciples, you will need that passage on your sermon guide. If you don't have your sermon guide yet, they're right over here on the side table. We're going to be continuing today in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And you can find today's passage on page 880 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. It's Easter, my friends, so I want to speak about the sons and daughters of the resurrection. That is, those who by the command of Jesus will be physically raised from the dead to be with him forever. So, six brief observations from our passage. Yes, it's Easter, you're going to get six. Sons and daughters of the resurrection will first, rightly read the scriptures. Second, no longer need marriage. Third, can never die. Fourth, are equal to angels. Fifth, are sons of God. And sixth, have been made worthy. Now I know it is my privilege to preach the gospel to you this morning, but it is your privilege and my invitation to you to help me in that by giving hearty amens, yes sirs, all right, Well, good news, that one hurt, pastor. Whatever it is that you feel compelled to say to help this good news be preached, please join in, all right? With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, and if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Church, hear the word of the Lord. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, if you didn't already know, then following the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, the arguably greatest soccer player in the world is Lionel Messi. What? (laughs) I can't hear you. Messi, right? All right, so thank you to Nathan Robertson for supplying this beautiful Easter wardrobe that I have today. Yes, Messi just captioned the Argentinian national team to its first World Cup trophy in 36 years, but that was only a crown jewel on what is otherwise a royally unbelievable career. Now, why am I giving a soccer story and why am I wearing a soccer jersey? It's because very soon we're going to be kicking off our spring soccer clinics, and I want y'all to get pumped with me. In order to begin to grasp Messi's impact on the world through sports, let me put it in these terms that will probably be more relevant to you than facts. His championship Instagram post this past December received the most likes in the history of Instagram. 70 million. And that's more people than the entire population of France whom they beat. (laughs) That's cold. But here's the thing. Messi is only five foot seven. Okay, that's not too intimidating for a world class athlete. And crazier than that, at age eleven, he was only about the height of this pulpit—four foot four inches. Doctors had diagnosed him with what's called growth hormone deficiency and projected that he would grow no taller than four foot seven. His only hope was to give himself human growth hormone injections. Which he did every day for six years. And so that means from boyhood all the way to his continuing career at age 36. Seemingly nothing that you throw at Messi can take him down. Now, if the world only knew my Jesus. I have no idea what his height was. But speaking of humble beginnings, I do know that he was willingly called by the term Jesus of Nazareth, a town known only for nothing good coming from it. I do know that around age two, he had to flee as a refugee to Egypt and spend the formative years of his boyhood there. And I do know that after showing himself to be the long-awaited Messiah in power, he rode into Jerusalem, not on a charging warhorse. But of all things, on a little donkey. Were anyone to look upon his below average characteristics in comparison to the tyrannical power of Rome, like here's a fitting diagnostic word that might have come to mind. Deficiency. And yet throughout this last week of his life, each unique group among his opponents threw everything they had at him. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they're all coming at him from religious, social, political, and cultural angles. Y'all, any lesser man would have wilted into a four-foot-four four little boy. And yet, nothing could take down Jesus Christ. And the crazy thing is, this was in the midst of God's Old Testament people. These were people who knew about the one true God. Who had his holy scriptures. Who were eagerly waiting for a savior anyways. The problem that they had was not a lack of good doctrine and devotion. It was a lack of this imagination. That is the ability to envision something far greater than human understanding. Now... Imagination gets a bad rap among Christians. We think of it as that which allows you to think of made-up stuff. But actually, biblical imagination is just the opposite. It's faith-filled. It's what allows you to be able to see what your eyes cannot see. You have imagination built into you. When you wake up in the morning, you immediately begin to imagine because all you have is the present moment in your life. And when you think, I'm going to go make some coffee, you're using your imagination it's not real yet, but you're envisioning the best part of waking up is sooner gas in your cup. Don't be drinking Folgers on my time, okay? No Folgers up in here. You see, these people could only envision a Savior who would defeat their enemies through war and conquest, not through death and resurrection. And this was truer of perhaps no one more so than a group called The Sadducees. We read of them at the beginning of today's passage. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, who exactly were the Sadducees? And why in the world would they reject something as awesome as a resurrection? Well, here's what we know about them. They were similar to the Pharisees in that they were a socially elite group, often wealthy who wielded great influence over religious life. And yet, whereas the Pharisees added things to Scripture, the Sadducees took things away. They were like Thomas Jefferson and his Jefferson Bible. Have you heard of this? Where he literally took a knife and cut out the parts that he did not like. The Sadducees did the same thing. They rejected anything beyond the first five books of the Old Testament. You're talking about a Bible that's this thick. For them, they would have cut it down to about this thick. They also rejected anything beyond the physical realm, such as angels. And they also rejected anything beyond life on earth, including a resurrection from the dead. They were also eager to maintain the status quo in order to keep their privileged position, which meant that they were ready to cooperate with the Romans. And so at the thought of Jesus winning over the people and unsettling the Romans, let's just say the Sadducees were sad, you see. They were not very happy with Jesus. Although it's impossible to make a perfect comparison, think of the modern day Sadducee as the person who has reduced their understanding of Christianity so much that their faith is largely removed and their religious practices are mostly rituals devoid of any spiritual significance in their everyday lives. They're also often occupied with social and political and personal causes with little thought of spiritual life after death. If Jesus were to show up and begin disrupting their comfortable lives, they would probably attack him intellectually. Use some pet argument that makes them feel superior to him. Like this one in verse 28. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Prepare yourself. For a straw man argument, here it comes. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. These guys are very cool with death, aren't they? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Riddle me this, Jesus So what they're using here is something called Levite marriage. It was a principle laid out in God's law that went like this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. No, no. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The idea was that a man not die childless with no means for his family name to carry on. So you remember, God's heart was that the seed of a Savior that he promised from the beginning would pass on from generation to generation until that Savior was born. And this law reflected that, along with God's concern for people like dead husbands and destitute widows. But the Sadducees, They take it out of context and use it as an argument to ruin Jesus' credibility. Not to mention, to make light of things like dead husbands and destitute widows. This is what those who are not sons and daughters of the resurrection do. They they take parts away from the Bible to approve their man-made views. They can't envision anything greater than their human understanding. They eisegete. Okay, they import meaning onto the Scriptures rather than exegete, draw meaning out of the Scriptures. And this is the limit of the Sadducees' imagination. They saw Levite marriage. I mean, you read about Levite marriage and tell me if you see anything in there about resurrection. okay. Anything in there that proves there's not a resurrection. They took left-right marriage as biblical proof that a resurrection doesn't exist. And if it did, so they said, then in heaven this poor woman would stand before seven husbands and have to choose. When I read that this week, the song that played through my head was the old country song by Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man. And this woman's standing there like, I don't know which one to stand by, Tammy. Where do I go here? Okay. This is, and it's just absurd, and that's what they are meant to bring out before Jesus so that he stumbles in it and doesn't know what to do. But this is more than an intellectual argument, isn't it? They are going after what is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Resurrection. You couldn't pick a more demonic, anti-gospel position to take. When someone asks, how can I be saved? The scriptures answer from Romans ten nine, That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God, what? Praise. Then you will be saved. It's at the heart of our faith and that is which they attack. These words of Paul the Apostle explain what I mean. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Devastating. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Devastating. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Devastating. You go to a funeral, you have no hope at all. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Devastating. Living this life, denying ourselves human pleasures and indulging our sinful flesh is foolishness if there's no resurrection. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die otherwise. Jesus, like what are you going to do? Our entire resurrection hope depends on how you respond to this. Well, here's what our champion does. He defends those who by his command will be physically raised from the dead to be with him forever. These sons and daughters of the resurrection, first of all, rightly read the scriptures. Young disciples, you need the word rightly Although it's inferred in Luke's gospel, Matthew and Mark include it in their versions, and I love it. But Jesus answered them, "You are wrong." <laughs> in, in Mark's gospel, it's put at the end, and Jesus says, "You are quite wrong." So maybe Jesus said it on both ends and Matthew and Mark just captures it in different places. I would love that if that's the way that He responded to them, because they are. you are wrong. Because, he's not just being a jerk, he has a reasoning here. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees are so far off the mark because they have sought to handle the word instead of being handled by the word. We seek to handle the word when we go to it in order to justify our own perspectives and opinions and desires. And then we carry it around like a sword to cut people down and divide them. Y'all, the Bible is powerful. And you can use it to do things like that. But its purpose is to do a different kind of dividing. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, how you divide them, I don't know. Of joints and marrow, how you slice that up, I don't know. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Part of how you know you're reading the Bible rightly is that it cuts your heart like a scalpel. And You might be reading it, but it's reading you. It will reveal things about you that are more devastating than anything anyone could ever say. But if you keep reading with faith filled imagination, it will also say things about you that are more life giving than anything anyone could ever say. For example, Jesus says this in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, you probably know this story. In the book of Exodus, a man named Moses sees a bush on fire, but that it isn't burning up. And it's God revealing himself to Moses. And God says, I am the God of your father, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, who were those guys? They were men of God who lived 400 years before Moses. Moses could probably go to where their bones were buried. So what is God saying? Not I was their God, but I am their God. They are alive with me beyond the grave. That's what he's saying. And notice what Jesus is doing here is not making an argument from some obscure passage in the book of Daniel or Habakkuk that the the Sadducees would would deny anyways. This is coming straight from their beloved first five books of the Bible, isn't it? Jesus takes the field, y'all, and he owns them on their own turf. That's what's happening here. And he does it for your sake. So that what is spoken of you who believe is more life-giving than anything that anyone could ever say about you. So that when you pick up a book like Exodus and you read it rightly, you're led to resurrection in the person of Jesus Christ, to which it points. You, in other words, as sons and daughters of the resurrection, can rightly read the Scriptures. Our second observation here is that the sons and daughters of the resurrection no longer need marriage. Marriage is the word that you need, young disciples, for your sermon guide. Some of y'all are like, what's he about to say? About to cancel out marriages in here? Since the Sadducees make their argument around the topic of marriage, Jesus responds in kind on the topic of marriage. And we read this in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And what this does is it sets up a contrast between present life on earth and life in the resurrection, the new creation. Jesus is saying that these two realms are fundamentally different. In this age, marriage was given by God in order To be a sign pointing to something far greater. That is eternal relationship with him. But humanity rebelled against God's design. They disobeyed his commands. They rejected relationship with him. And the consequence was death. Because there is no life apart from God. And so marriage became not just a sign pointing. But the God ordained means by which humanity wouldn't die out. Now, in the resurrection, there is no need for an earthly form of marriage or family or children because the sign has been replaced with that to which it pointed and because death no longer takes life. See that? Now, if you struggle with this truth, that there will be no biological marriage or family or children or inferred with that, sex in the resurrection y'all i get it it's kind of lame it seems to live in a realm forever without earth's highest pleasures but c.s lewis puts it this way imagine you're talking to a little boy this is easy to do on easter and he is eating his chocolate bunny right and you start trying to convince him that marital intimacy is far greater than that chocolate bunny How's that going to go? Like he's going to look at you while he continues to munch away at his chocolate bunny. Even though you are right, he has no category for what you're talking about. In the same way, we have no category for what is infinitely superior to our earthly relationships. Will we still know each other? Will we still remember our spouses and parents and children and have a special relationship and appreciation for them? Yes. Like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob apparently do, Jesus comes back from the dead, he walks through walls and it's not like, hey, I don't know any of you people and you don't really know me, this is weird. No, he knows them all. Like he still names, he's still eating fish right? These relationships are still, still in place. And if our resurrection is all wrapped up in his, then the same will be true of us. We will know each other. And yet, what if all the sons and daughters of the resurrection belong to each other in a way that's far greater than biological family? Do you think that the creator of marital intimacy is unable to prepare a realm infinitely more pleasurable than five seconds of ecstasy? If so, you're still eating a chocolate bunny. Lewis says that when we measure the resurrection by things like earthly marriage or mansions in the sky, here's what happens. Four words. It... Reduces our imagination. In other words. You can't envision something far greater. Than human understanding. And this was certainly the case for the Sadducees. Whose imaginations had been reduced down to nothing. And if they would only read his word rightly. And believe. Then they would see that one day. They would no longer need. Earthly marriage. Because they would have something so far greater. Christ himself with his whole family. But that's not enough for Jesus here. He still has four more penalty kicks to drive home in this match. And so the next three come rapid fire, which is good news for you who want to make it to Easter lunch in a little bit. And they're all captured in one verse, verse 36. The sons and daughters of the resurrection, he says, cannot die anymore Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So First, he tells us, sons and daughters of the resurrection can never die again. Young disciples, you need the word die. And young disciples, isn't that good news that if you trust in Jesus, you will never die again? This one seems pretty self-explanatory, but y'all, yeah, we just can't pass over it lightly. There's a big difference between will not die anymore and cannot die anymore. You see, the implied promise to God's first son and daughter, Adam and Eve, was that if they obeyed, then they would not die. It wasn't at all that they could not die. They totally could, and they did, Right. But in the resurrection, it's so fundamentally different that death isn't even a possibility. You've gone through something that's given you the kind of body in which nothing thrown at you can take you down. And the artist Andrew Peterson alludes to this with these lyrics. Maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken by sin and then redeemed by love, the love of God in the gospel. And I would say, yes, it is a better thing. Better to have known death in order to more deeply appreciate that it's never coming for you again. Better to have felt the gnawing sense of ever approaching death in order to feel the ecstatic sense of never-ending life. Surely there is somebody in this body who has walked through cancer and who has a taste for life that none of the rest of us can appreciate. They've been through something and been set free from it. And so they appreciate it all the more. This is us for all of eternity in heaven. We've gone through something. We have life. A life that means that the sons and daughters of the resurrection are next equal to angels. Young disciples, you need that word, angels. Yes, we believe in them here. Why would Jesus include this in his response? Well, remember one of the things that the Sadducees rejected? What did they reject? I remember? Angels. So Jesus is saying that not only do angels exist, but that resurrected humans will be like them, in an eternal state of flaming glory. Now, of course, this does not mean, as some falsely believe, that we will be angels. In his first letter recorded in the Bible, Peter speaks of, quote, the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look into these things. You see, angels have already distinguished themselves from us in their childlike wonder over our salvation. They haven't been saved. They did not fall. And among their brothers and sisters who did fall, there was no offer of salvation, was there? You're a fallen angel? You're a fallen angel. And your only destination is hell forever when judgment comes. And yet for us, we are worthy of that same judgment. We're saved from it by God's own blood. The angels long to look into this. How can this be? You think you're up there asking, you know, uh, Gabriel questions, and he's sitting down saying, no, 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 wait, wait. I've been waiting for a long time to ask you some questions, okay? I've been longing to understand what it was like for you to hear the good news, and to believe, and to be saved. What is that like? And so sons and daughters of the resurrection are not angels. We are like them in many ways. But instead, we are sons of God. Young disciples, you need that word sons. It can mean sons and daughters. So don't think of this as just the the boy young disciples in the room who are getting to be part of the resurrection. In a controversial passage of the Old Testament, God is speaking of the sinful disappointment that his people had become. And he concludes this way I said, You are gods, lowercase g, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is not polytheism, which is the belief in many gods. This is not Mormonism, which says that one day you will be your own God. This is God referring back to his intention from the beginning of creation that his sons and daughters would rule the earth as his representatives. They were to be image bearers of the great, capital G, God. And yet, in our rebellion, we chose death. We became, as the Bible puts it in other places, sons of the devil, sons of hell. So for Jesus to say that in the resurrection we will be sons of God, he's not just speaking of adoption. As though God is now, once again, your Father. That is already true of you believers in this room. What he's saying is, you shall not die like men. You shall not fall like any prince. You shall rule the new creation as my representatives forever. My beloved sons and daughters, once again. And listen, in a world where everything you see, taste, touch, hear, and smell is literally coming to an end. If you're going to envision never dying again, living like angels, and being sons of God, guess what you're going to have to have? Imagination. And here's where the source of that imagination comes. That the sons and daughters of the resurrection have been made Worthy. Young disciples, write down that word, worthy. Now we skipped over this earlier, but going back to verse 35, Jesus says a phrase that draws this whole passage together. He says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. So here's the thing. Everyone will experience life after death. Jesus says this very thing in verse 38. God is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. There is no soul sleep. There is no annihilation. All will stand before God and give an account, but only some will be counted worthy to enter the resurrection life and the new creation. The question is, who? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Apostle John weeps in Revelation because the answer is no. None of us can. Who can open the scroll and write their own name on the guest list? No one. And I would hope that there's no one here so foolish as the Sadducees that you would say, "Eh, I really don't care to be raised from the dead. Like your general attitude toward life is kind of like Nacho Libre. My life is good, really good, (laughs) even though your life is not really good. You just are constantly consoling yourself with temporary pleasures so that you don't have to think about your rapidly approaching death. C.S. Lewis says that even within our delight in earthly pleasures, even in our consoling of ourselves with With things that fill our hearts and distract us from death. There is still a deep longing. The scent of a flower we have not found. Like the echo of a tune we have never heard. And like news from a country that we have never yet visited. Our hearts cry. I want more than chocolate. I want to be worthy. What then? Make someone worthy. It's not a what. It's a who. And as I like get ready to preach them to you. Would someone please go get the kids in the back and bring them in? Because we're going to have a baptism after this and we want them to be able to participate in it now. I think Shannon's going to do it. You can send five, just roll up on them. They'll be like, What's happening? <laughs> You're like something really important, Sam. You got to get in here. It's not a what; it's a who. You see, even though Jesus Christ had no deficiency, even though he defeated all of his opponents, even though he was the champion with seventy million plus likes from God and all the hosts of heaven. Jesus saw it as a better thing to be more than merely innocent as the sinless son of God, but to be broken, taking on your sins and then redeemed by love, set free from death on the third day when he rose again. Jesus saw it as a better thing To do this, even though he was not merely a lowercase g God, but the uppercase g God, the Son of the Most High, like a man, he still chose to die and fall like any prince. Even though he was superior to angels as their creator, he left them longing to understand why he would die for those made lower than the angels. And even though he as life itself could not die, he took on a body that would die. And did die, didn't it? That would die for those who do things like add things to scripture and those who take things away. For those who are eager to maintain the status quo in order to keep their privileged position. For those whose religious practices have become only rituals devoid of spiritual significance in their everyday lives. For those who are predominantly occupied with social and political and personal causes. For those who are not very happy with Jesus. For those who have lost their imagination. So use your imagination with me for a moment to try to fathom the kind of love that comes for its opponents. He squashes the Sadducees like it ain't nothing. And then he goes and dies for them and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who could have imagined that the God of the living would come to die for the dying? And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was taking your place. And that's what Jesus was doing in rising from the grave. He was taking your place. That's what you've got to go through in order to be given the kind of body in which nothing thrown at you can take you down. You've got to die with him and rise again. The old person gone, the new person resurrected to the Christian life, in order to be made worthy of the resurrection, this is what you go through. By faith, you let him take your place. You die with him to your old imagination. And you rise with him to a new imagination. Listen, friends, if you read the scriptures rightly, this is what both Old and New Testaments literally say. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man, what? Imagine. See, I was not make this up. It's in the Bible. That's right. Imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, most people, I hear it quoted all the time, they read this passage as applying to heaven. Oh, we just can't imagine what it's going to be like. Can't wait. When we all get to heaven. But in the context, do you know what this is talking about? This is talking about the salvation into which angels would long to look. It's saying no eye, ear, or heart had imagined how great a salvation God had prepared for those who love Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the gospel. And so we take that principle and we say if that's true of the gospel and everything that led up to it, then today no eye, no ear, no heart can fully imagine what God has prepared in the resurrection when he comes again. And so this is my application this morning for everyone in the room. First, to those who are not yet sons and daughters of the resurrection. And you know it, not because I said anything, but because the Bible has cut your heart like a scalpel. You know it. You can't deny it. You feel it down to your bones. If that's you, see that the teacher has spoken well. And dare to ask him only one more question. Just one more question, Jesus. Will you make me worthy? Will you make me worthy to be a son or a daughter of the resurrection? And he will. He's proven it. He will. And second, to those of you who are already sons and daughters of the resurrection... My application is, go into this season of Eastertide with a renewed imagination for the coming resurrection. Me and a friend of mine started something. I promise you it's not a cult. We call it the Inklings, the Institute of New Creationists. Okay, And so what we do is we sit around a fire, we bring our favorite beverage, and we stir one another's imagination toward the new creation. We talk about what it's going to be like. We ask questions. We wrestle with the continuity between the the original earth and the new earth and the new heavens. We just see where it goes, where it takes us. And every time we walk away with our hearts full because our imaginations, faith-filled, have been stretched. And I'm not saying that you need to do that. Maybe you need to invite yourself to my group. We might let you in, okay? (laughs) But walk away allowing your imagination to be stirred and stretched and to encourage one another in that way. Our tagline of the Inklings is, One Day Closer. Because we're not not pushing away from death. We're saying, "All right, let it come. And it's time. Because I'll be one day closer to the resurrection and marriage to my Lord Jesus. In order to help you, two things that God has given His church to stir their imagination. First, baptism. Baptism is one of the most important steps of obedience that a Christian can take. It is a declaration and a display of the total salvation that Jesus has already provided for us. A person is lowered into the water to symbolize the death of Jesus. Man, I can't even set this up better than this sermon, this baptism put together. They're lowered in the water to symbolize the death of Jesus. And then they're raised from the water to symbolize the resurrection of Jesus. Come on up. Where you at? Over here. Today, Helen Case is going public with her faith through baptism. And right now, we're going to hear her testimony... We're going to hear her testimony, read by her mother, Melanie.
1: A couple years ago, my mom was talking about the parable about building your house on a rock from Matthew 7. At first, I didn't understand the parable. I didn't understand why someone would want to build their house on the sand, but I also didn't understand why they really wanted to build their house on the rock either, because rocks are uneven. <laughs> Last summer at UBS, we studied the same parable. Matthew 7. And I, sorry. I finally understood the parable. The person who builds their house on the sand is like building a quicksand. And it's not stable because it's built by sinners alone. But with a house on the rock, it's like the people who put their sins, no, it's like the people who put their faith in Jesus and trust in Jesus and ask for his help. The one with the rock will actually repent of their sins during their struggle. The people who don't ask for Jesus' help, who build on sand, they struggle too, but they don't know Jesus. They're prideful and they will just deny their sin and they're far from God. I want to be with God. I don't want to build my house on my own. I want God to build my house, my heart. One way that this works out in my life is with my brothers. Sometimes I try to control my brothers by telling them to shut up <laughs> because I get mad at them. In these instances, I'm being my own God. Jesus helps me to extend grace to my brothers. And when I don't extend grace and I sin against God and my brothers, Jesus helps me to repent. That means turning away from my sin and turning toward God and to reconcile with my brothers, but mostly with him. On February 25th, I was talking to my mom about baptism. I asked her if you have to get baptized to know Jesus. My mom said that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead on the third day, that you'll be saved. I told her I did believe. I said I did not want to be my own king anymore. I wanted God to be my king. Then I prayed and I confessed that I am a sinner and I need God's help to repent. I confessed that Jesus is Lord and that I believe that he rose on the third day. The last word we said was Amen. And then we were both happy, happy together. It is now clear to me that God wants me to be his. He has a plan for me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day to save sinners like me from our own sinful hearts so that we can be close to God when we put our trust in
0: him. I trust him. Helen, thanks be to God for what he has done in your life. Baptism not only means that you have committed to be a disciple of Jesus, but it also means that the church commits to help disciple you. Church, we should feel the weight of this responsibility, especially as a church that is oriented around families. And so let's take a moment and pray for our sister in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the glorious testimony of Helen Case. Thank you that you saved her and changed her heart and that you called her by name and she said yes. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray your protection over her so that she would not, the seed that was planted in her heart and has taken root would not be stolen away by the enemy, but would continue to grow and up and flourish so that she might be a branch that comes from your fruitful vine, Lord Jesus, and that she would become all that you created her to be and that one day we could say to her with great joy, you are sent to go and to be and to multiply. Lord, thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen, one Amen. one important question before you are baptized. What is your sacred confession? Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. I baptize
1: you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with me.
0: On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're remembering my death. Yes, but you are announcing my coming which is soon. Today we are announcing something that I want to invite you to announce with me. It'll be up on the screen. Today we are announcing, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Our invitation here, whether you are a member or not, if you are a baptized believer, to come forward to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There's gluten-free going to be available over on this side. I want you to come with your heart prepared, confessing any sin that God has revealed, reconciling with anyone with whom you have beef, like the scriptures call us to, and that you would remember what Jesus has done for you and you will proclaim it by taking this bread and this cup into your heart. If you're here today and you are not a baptized believer, we would invite you, hey, believe in Jesus and follow in in Helen's example today. Helen will be the first one to take communion. And then the rest of you all, please make your way forward as the Lord leads you. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you and we give you thanks and we give you glory on this glorious Easter day. Lord, what a joy it is to be called sons and daughters of the resurrection. Our minds can hardly fathom it. And so we need you to come and stir and stretch and move in our imaginations so that we can take it in more fully and be more prepared for it. God, we thank you for helping us to read your word rightly. We come before you humbly saying that it's so tempting to read into your word our own opinions and let us come humbly, Lord, instead and let you speak and handle us with your word. We pray that in this moment as people respond, they would respond with hearts of fire, open to you, that they would not shuffle forward to this table full of shame, fear, guilt, but they would come forward with their heads lifted high, that they would look into the eyes of the person who speaks to them. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And that they, as they look into their eyes, would know that truly you are glad to have them at your table. And Lord, for those here today who have been cut to the heart and know that they do not know you, I pray that they would not be so courageous as to step out of this space not knowing you. But instead, Lord, they would lay their lives down and receive the good news that you hold out to them. That they might be resurrected. We pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.